If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you've probably figured out that I have no idea what I'm doing, or you think I'm an idiot, or both. Except the thing is, I'm not an idiot, and I do know what the heck I'm talking about, but you'll never convince me of that. <laughs> it's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're sitting down with friend of the show, Cam Summerson. The reason for that is because he and I, and indeed a number of folks in this industry, suffer from a condition known as imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is the dead certainty that I suck and I have no idea what I'm doing, and at any moment now, everyone else is going to realize that and call me out on it. Now, objectively... I know that's not true, and you, I hope, also know that's not true, but all the same, I wake up every day terrified at the prospect that everyone who listens to this show, or reads my work, or, God forbid, those who pay me to write for them, are going to figure that out too, and I'm terrible at this, and they're just going to cut me loose. Now, does this make sense? No! Do I still feel this way? All the damn time. So does Cameron Summerson, who literally runs his own successful website, ReviewGeek.com. So we sat down to talk about it. Plus, this week we're taking a look at a projector that I've been using in my home for the past few weeks. It's a 4K projector that's about the size of two books stacked up on top of each other. It's reasonably tiny and I've been evaluating it and I'm ready to share some thoughts. Finally, we have a tech yeah item that has played a small but significant role in my life for the past few weeks. So yeah, this is a busy show and we will get to all of that. But first, we have to get to the news of the week. Most of this week's news is going to be rather Apple-centric because it's September. So if that's not your cup of tea you might just want to skip forward 10 minutes or so. Sorry. This week, rumors started to surface that the iPhone 13 might have satellite communication capabilities. Um, what? That's right, the iPhone 13 might be able to communicate with satellites. And not just, like, GPS, I'm talking about actual communication. And this fueled all sorts of speculation about what that means and just what the heck is going on, and we still don't have any clear answers. Sasha Segan at PC Mag speculates that this might have something to do with the 5G spectrum that satellite company GlobalStar owns down here on terra firma. The Verge speculates via Bloomberg and analyst Ming-Chi Kuo that iPhones might actually be able to send signals to low-Earth satellites, but only in emergencies and in areas where other signals don't exist. So if you're lost hiking in the woods or maybe in an area hit by a natural disaster, you can send an emergency text. Bloomberg also speculates that messages sent that way would have a gray bubble instead of green or blue, and try getting a date then, jeez. Regardless of what the capability is, we'll hear about it in a couple of weeks, so I guess I'll tell you more about it then. And by the way, this is why we don't report on rumors, but everyone was all a flutter about this at the beginning of the week, so it seemed worth talking about. Apple, despite the fact that they do business in a giant fishbowl, does act like a normal company. 
occasionally. And part of that means that Apple has Slack. Okay, that's not so crazy. Apple also has Slack terms of use, and that's not like the yada, 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 I agree terms of use that you need to agree to in order to install Slack. I mean a terms of use for employees who work at Apple who also want to use Slack. Now, most companies also have terms of use for Slack, but they tend to be more you know, informal and just try to reply to a Slack post on Android Central Slack without threading it. It's not recommended. So what's the point of all this? And despite the fact that you probably ask yourself that question after every episode of the podcast, this time I'm going to answer. The point is that Apple recently barred employees from creating a Slack channel in which they could discuss pay equity and diversity. Well, that seems a little harsh. Why did they do that, Adam? Well, I'll tell you, boo, and by the way, you look great today. Because Apple's Slack terms of use specifically prohibit the creation of Slack channels for non-work-related activities. And here's the actual quote. Quote, Slack channels for activities and hobbies not recognized as Apple employee clubs or diversity network associations aren't permitted and shouldn't be created. Apple goes on to say, quote, Slack channels are provided to conduct Apple business and must advance the work, deliverables, or mission of Apple's departments and teams. Huh, okay, well, that makes perfect sense. You know, Apple just wants to cut down on the non-productive work chatty Cathy's while people are on the clock trying to put out those privacy updates. Okay, seems a little restrictive, but as long as all the channels in Apple Slack work towards that goal of overall making iPhones safe for democracy, then we could just go, oh, crap, that's not the only channels they have, are they? <sighs> Hashtag fun dogs. Hashtag dad jokes. Hashtag community foosball. So employees sharing pictures of pooches is kosher, but employees making sure they're not getting screwed at the bank is not. How does community foosball advance the work, deliverables, and mission of Apple? Apple. So the problem here isn't really the rules. The problem is that the rules aren't being enforced equally for everyone. And if you're not doing that equally, Apple, hmm, what else are you not doing equally? Very interesting question, and an interesting question that might be a good uh, topic for a Slack channel. What do I know? Well, I, for one, am on the edge of my seat to read about the creation of hashtag pay equity or the demise of hashtag fun cats, because if one of those exists, so should the other. Speaking of Apple not letting something exist, a few weeks ago we talked about Apple's new measures being instituted to help kids not get exposed to porn. The CSAM protections and all the other trimmings are officially being put on hold. Despite the fact that Apple has said to anyone who will listen that CSAM protections are as safe and as foolproof as possible, well, now they're not so sure, saying, quote, based on feedback from customers, advocacy groups, researchers, and others, We've decided to take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these critically important child safety features. And let that be a lesson to you, Apple. Ask first, then announce. So, uh, I'm not really sure what adjustments they can make to the CSAM stuff to make it more palatable to the masses, but a whole lot of people seem to think that it was flawed. 
Then again, presumably a whole lot of people at Apple thought it was bulletproof. So there's definitely a disconnect there. I mean, I guess Apple just wants to make sure everything's okay before it rolls out these changes, but PR 101 says Apple's going to have to make some big changes to everything to sell this again, and Apple's already really late to this party. So we'll have a chance to wait and see and see what the ultimate result will be, but at the very least, it should be entertaining. Speaking of Apple not thinking things through, this is the last Apple story, by the way, but back in June, Apple announced that soon you'll be able to store your ID on your iPhone and Apple Watch to make it easier to get, you know, carded at a bar or pass through TSA. This week saw the functionality rolled out to Arizona and Georgia residents first, with Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Utah to follow. That's eight out of 50 states, but only two of them have baseball teams. And by the way, my home state of Illinois' actual driver's licenses, the cards, don't comply with federal standards yet, which is why when I fly, I have to take my passport. And that's my tax dollars at work, folks. Still, there are a lot of questions surrounding this. Most notably, does that mean you'll have to hand over your iPhone during traffic stops? No one really has the answer to that, except just carry your actual license with you and then... Well, what's the point of going digital? Well, folks, the same point as carrying a credit card when you use Google Pay. Not everywhere takes Google Pay, but the places that do make it super easy. It's the same thing here. So no, you don't hand over your iPhone, and no, don't throw away your wallet yet either. We're getting there, but honestly, we're still a long way off, despite what Apple says. LinkedIn rolled out LinkedIn Stories back in 2020, and this week it's retiring the destructible content on the platform. My only question is, what took LinkedIn so long? Seriously, I'm a fairly steady LinkedIn user, which reminds me I have to cancel the latest free trial of LinkedIn Premium that LinkedIn gives me a couple times a year. Anyway, even as a serious user of LinkedIn like me, I never posted a story, and to be totally honest, up until I heard they got axed earlier this week... I kind of forgot they were there. But that's the legacy of stories. Here today, gone tomorrow. So we really can't be surprised that stories are, well, gone tomorrow. I never use them, even on platforms where they're common. And in my world, content that's worth creating is worth creating forever. It's hard enough making and editing a video, but to make and edit a video that'll only exist for 24 hours... That's just not a good idea. I suspect that stories will eventually turn into either reels or maybe Twitter spaces or something like that. And pretty soon Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and who knows, maybe the Subway app is all going to have either 60 second videos that you can share with each other or they're going to allow everybody in to have a chat live. That at least is permanent content and I can get behind that. And as for stories... I guess R.I.P. LinkedIn stories, I hardly knew ye, and by hardly knew ye, I mean not even a little bit at all. Google is still talking about removing the necessity for saying OKG in order to trigger some commands like playing or pausing media, asking about the weather, stuff like that. And this is causing some people to become concerned about privacy because that means Google will be listening all the time. Here's the thing, though. Google is already listening all the time. The only thing it's not doing is keeping anything that isn't OKG followed by a command. But yeah, anytime you walk into a room with a smart speaker, 
You're walking into a hot mic, folks. It's just a question of the commands that the speaker will be processing, so I'm not worried about that. I'm just not sure that having to say OKG or the A word or the S word is actually the problem. Sure, we all envision a world where we can Star Trek our way through voice commands, but think about the show, folks. Most commands issued on that show start with computer. The difference between Star Trek and now is the fact that we have to start every command with OKG, like OKG, okay, what's 86 times 5? OKG, okay, divide that by 16. OKG, okay, now add 14. OKG, okay, now compare that to the number of, I don't know, seats at Wrigley Field or something. That's the problem. Google or whatever assistant you're using needs to know when the conversation starts and when it stops, and that's the really hard part to figure out. So losing the trigger word isn't really the problem. The problem is having to say it before every single question. When Microsoft introduced Windows 11 earlier this year, it came with something of a bombshell announcement. Windows was going to be able to run Android apps natively. The only question Microsoft couldn't answer at the time was why? And speaking of why, Microsoft also announced that you wouldn't be able to run apps from the Google Play Store, but rather from the Amazon App Store. And once again, I have to ask why? And also, ew. Anyway, it turns out that it's not something to worry about in 2021 because that capability isn't coming until 2022. The thing is, though, Microsoft still hasn't answered that first question. Why? Now, as a Samsung user, I've had the capability of mirroring my phone and its apps on my desktop, and try as I might, I can't find a compelling use case for running Android apps on my Windows computer. Android apps are designed to be used with touch, and I guess maybe if you have a touch screen on your laptop, then I can kind of sort of see that, but I've never tried it, so I can't really speak to it. Honestly, the most compelling use case I have found is the Facebook Messenger app so that I can chat with my wife and family without having to actually open Facebook. Suck at Facebook. But even that is sort of an edge case. I'm just not sure which Android app the masses are yearning to get onto their desktop computers. See, on Chrome OS, it actually makes a little bit more sense because Chrome OS doesn't have apps at all. So if you have a Lenovo Duet or something, Android apps can be handy. But for a Windows desktop that has pretty much everything you might need already... Android apps don't make a hell of a lot of sense, and the Amazon App Store makes even less sense. I mean, look, if you're excited for this, I'm not going to yuck your yum. If this is the killer feature you've been waiting for, then more power to you. But as for me, when the Amazon App Store does come to Windows 11, I won't be installing anything. I just can't think of anything that I need to install that Windows doesn't already do just fine. And I guess now I have until 2022 to figure that out. And finally, on September 1st, creators around the world stepped away from their creation platform, Twitch, to take a stand against the haters and the trolls on the platform. You see, as we discussed last week, people are jerks, and there's a lot of jerks on the internet, and they like to be jerks to Twitch creators, and Twitch isn't doing a whole hell of a lot about it. So creators around the world decided to take the day off, and by the way, I learned because of this story that hate raids are a thing. Like, seriously? Hate raids? 
raids. I guess that's a thing where trolls flood a creator's chat with hateful messages filled with sexism, transphobia, racism, and pretty much everything else your uncle talks about at Thanksgiving. It basically runs the entire gamut of hate that used to be the sole property of Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. It seems they're branching out now. Groovy. Anyway, Twitch says that tools are on the way to help creators stop the hate and that's nice, but as I've said in the past, platforms like Twitch and Facebook and Twitter are mostly too large to prevent all that hate. Now, some streamers suggest that allowing creators to institute something as simple as an account age into whether or not you can comment on a stream or not is a good idea. Most hate raids come from accounts that are less than one day old, so yeah, that would do it. Other streamers suggest that limiting account creation is another way to keep things honest. Currently, people can create multiple accounts from the same email address, but even if they couldn't, as long as free email services exist, that's always going to be a problem. Regardless, we can all hope that Twitch is on top of things and will help their creators out because you know they're the only reason that the platform exists. Although, if YouTube commenters are any indication, we're going to be waiting for this for a long time. Backend application API bugs attachment DevOps backend frameworks backward component oriented natural language software blue text editor book version web server welcome to Tech Yeah. This week for Tech Yeah, I want to talk about power! That's right, the power of Anchor, because a couple of months ago, I ordered a new power strip from Anchor that has proven to be quite useful. My wife and I originally ordered one for each of us for our vacation to LA that never happened, but as it turns out, we've been using the heck out of them since then. We've had to crash on the living room couch for a few nights this summer, and this cable was very handy on those occasions. The cable itself is five feet long and ends in a cube. The bottom sits flat on the floor, and the cable goes into one of the four sides. Each of the other three vertical sides has an AC plug, while the top has three USB type A ports and a power switch. And that's really it. I mean, this is nothing super fancy or fabulous or anything, but it has been really handy. When we've had to crash on the couch, the AC outlets power a box fan and alarm clock, while the USB plugs power our phones and tablets. We've gotten our projector out, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute, and an external speaker that we use when we use it, the reasons for which will be explained when I tell you about the projector, and the power plugs in the projector and the speaker while the USB-A plug powers the Chromecast or the Fire Stick that we use for it. Now don't get me wrong, this isn't a life-saving device like Mophie's flashlight, nor is it life-changing like the Zag Keyboard Pro for my iPad, but they're very handy and this is the kind of thing that I really think everyone should have one or two laying around the house, and if that's the case, why not buy them from BenefitOfADoubt.com and help out the show while you're at it? There's a link to it on the website and in the show notes. And as always, you'll be helping out the show and you'll have my thanks. But for now, let's get back to the show. Projectors are one of those fairly niche items that just about everybody thinks 
Why would I get a projector when I can get a better TV cheaper? And that is a very fair point. Projectors don't fill every use case, that's for sure. But there are some use cases where projectors work so much better than a TV, and I happen to be one of those. So I've been checking out a projector from a company called... Well, I'm not really sure how to pronounce their name, but it's A-A-X-A, so I'm just going to say AXA. I've been testing a projector from them for some time now, and I'm ready to share my thoughts. This is our full review of the AXA 4K1 Mini Projector. In my house, I have a living room with vaulted ceilings and a lot of bookshelves and basically nowhere to put a TV, and that's not really a big deal for two reasons. One, we rarely spend any time in our living room, and two, because most of us in the house watch TV and movies on our devices rather than on a larger screen. But over the summer, my daughter had an accident, and as a result, we started spending a lot more time in the living room, and for her, holding her phone wasn't really an option so as it happens it was a good thing that i was looking at this projector because i was able to set it up and provide some entertainment for my poor broken daughter the projector itself is not really a mini projector per se it is fairly small considering what it offers but it's not like it fits in a cup holder or anything it measures seven inches by eight and a quarter inches by two and a half inches so it will fit into a backpack if you need it to by the way, it also comes with a carrying case, so you probably wouldn't need to fit it into a backpack, but that's not the point. There's a primary lens in front, along with two front-firing speakers, which we'll talk about in a minute. The lens itself is recessed inside the body of the projector, so it'll be protected during transport. But there's no cap that goes over it, and honestly, it would be tricky for the lens to get scratched as it is, because it's set back into the device, especially if the projector's in its carrying case, so I really can't fault that too much, but it seemed worth mentioning. Three fans along the left side work to keep it cool. On the back, you have a plethora of inputs, including USB-A, two HDMI slots, a recessed remote IR port, which we'll also talk about in a bit, and two 3.5mm jacks for headphones and aux output. There's also a power switch. On top, there are touch-sensitive controls that allow you to navigate the custom operating system, but I never really use them, and I'll explain why in a bit. The projector is capable of 4K resolution with an output of 1500 lumens of brightness. 1500 is just over the bare minimum that you need if you're not going to be in a completely dark room. The picture is incredibly sharp and with bright colors, but also a fairly middling 2000 to 1 contrast ratio. The projector can cast an image up to 300 inches on the diagonal, but I never took it up that high. Instead, I had about a 6-foot screen projected from about 8 feet away. The two HDMI ports are HDMI 2.2, by the way, and one of them became the home of my Chromecast with Google TV. The projector doesn't have a built-in smart operating system and no streaming apps, so the only way it projects is with input, and that's fairly typical in the projector world. Unlike TVs, a projector with smart functionality or a built-in operating system with apps is actually somewhat rare. The front-facing speakers on this projector are not loud enough, and that's probably because they're front-facing. I ended up using an edifier speaker along with the projector to get enough sound to fill the room, and that edifier speaker will be the subject of a future Tech Yeah, by the way. 
Once you power up the projector, you get a custom operating system that allows you to control settings on the projector, such as brightness, contrast, and input selection. There is no automatic input selection, which is a bit disappointing. My old eyes struggled to see the labels for HDMI 1 and 2 on the back of the projector, though in retrospect, it makes sense that they're one followed by two. Duh. But anyway, the Google Chromecast was being grouchy about powering on as well, so it was overall not an ideal situation, but not one that I can totally blame on AXA for either. As for navigating the operating system, that's a very imperfect solution as well. You can use the touch-sensitive controls on the top of the projector, but the problem is they're not backlit, so if you're in a dark room, it's hard to see what you're pressing. Similarly, the remote can be very finicky to use because the IR sensor for the remote is recessed into the back of the projector. You have to aim directly straight into the sensor for the remote to work, so between those two issues, it was kind of rough to navigate. Getting back to those front-firing speakers, I'd like to say that I'm willing to forgive it because there's no perfect place to put speakers on a projector because it really depends on where the person is going to place the projector. Sometimes it's in the back of the room, sometimes it's in the front, sometimes it's on the ceiling, sometimes it's on a tray table. But in this case, since the remote's IR sensor is in the back, that kind of means that Axe's intention is that the projector is going to be in front of you, which means the front-firing speakers do not make any sense at all. And am I harping on the speakers? Yes, but, you know, I'm a sound guy. What do you want? The projector is a box that sits flat on the table. There's no feet to help level it, nor is there any method for aiming it. We had to prop it up a bit to get it to point in the correct place on the wall. There are keystone correction controls on the remote. Keystone correction is what allows you to adjust the picture so that it's a perfect rectangle on the wall, even though the projector is shooting at an angle. Anyway, the keystone controls are very fine, meaning that each adjustment is fairly tiny, so it's hard to get the keystone to correct the way you want it to. Once you get everything set up and you navigate over to the proper HDMI port and the Chromecast bothers to turn on, the picture itself is beautiful. There's focus adjustment on the remote, which is a nice addition since we had our projector sitting on a tray table that often got moved around when the projector wasn't in use. So when we put it back, the focus was not always sharp, so the ability to adjust it with the remote was welcome. The picture itself, like I said, is awesome, and it should be because it's 4K, but the colors are bright and the projector itself is bright. Even though we never had a totally dark room, there was no trouble watching movies or YouTube even during the day. Like I said, 1500 lumens is just above the bare minimum that you need to be able to see. I watched Black Widow on this projector and so many episodes of Star Trek, it's a little silly, and also a lot of YouTube. Overall, I dig the projector's output, but it's the rest of the compromises involved that kind of bring it down in my book. This projector currently retails for about $850, and while that's a very decent price for a 4K projector, it comes with a lot of compromises. There's no way to aim it, the remote is tricky to use, the speakers are too soft, and by the way, on the wrong side of the projector to begin with. So $850 is a big ask. It's a great price for a 4K projector, don't get me wrong, but there are just too many compromises for me to really recommend it. Now, if you're like me and you have speakers laying around and you have the ability to aim the projector by propping it up or mounting it or something, then yeah, this is a pretty good deal. But if you're not willing to jump through a couple of hoops to make this thing work, 
I get that. There are some very decent projector options out there for a lot less money. They probably won't be as bright and they definitely will not be 4K, but they will be cheaper and have less compromises. All the same, if you want to pick one up, there's a link in the show notes and at benefitofadow.com. And if you buy it from there, I'll get a little cut and you'll have my thanks. But for now, let's get back to the show. A little-known fact about the tech industry is the preponderance of imposter syndrome. This is an affliction that hits us all at times, but seems to be particularly hard-hitting in the tech industry for some damn reason. And I know I suffer from it, and I know my guest suffers from it, so we just wanted to take a few minutes to pull back the curtain and talk about imposter syndrome with... Cameron Summerson, Editor-in-Chief of ReviewGeek.com. Thank you so much for joining me, Cameron, as I'm going to say to you for the second time this evening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, man. But um, so I now I remember when uh, during the brief time that I worked for Review Geek, I saw this topic come up and you and I had a chance to talk about it uh, a little bit, but it was like two years ago. So I figure it's time we can we can expand on it at this point. But uh, imposter syndrome is basically the the knowledge and the certainty that you are BSing your way through everything in life and you're just waiting for everybody else to figure it out. So like, I know I suffer from that on a daily basis and yeah. my, my, um, my defense mechanism against that is self-deprecating humor. Uh, so, but I wanted to, I, I know that you suffer from it too. And so I just wanted to take a moment, like how does it manifest itself in you when you, when you have like a, a really strong bout of it. I know it's not like an everyday thing, but it's it's not. But you know, it's 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 interesting because it's like when I was when I was promoted to editor in chief of of Review Geek, it was I was excited, you know. And then after a, a little while, it sort of set in, and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not. <laughs> I, I when are they going to figure out that I don't know? I'm not the right guy for this job. And right. I, you know, it, it, it is absolutely, absolutely a real thing. And it's, it's hard to deal with because when you don't feel good enough for what you're doing, it's, it, I, I don't even know, man. It's like, how do you, uh, how do you move forward from that? Yeah, I think I think it's crippling. I mean, at some at sometimes it's crippling, yeah. and at sometimes you just like I know you know, especially as a writer, um, you know, I know I have bad days, and I know I've written some reviews that probably never should have gotten published, um, and you know, like I've just kind of learned to kind of shrug and say, well, I, I guess I won't have my best effort every single time. I mean, you know, because, yeah. I mean, that's really the, whether you're, whether you're writing, whether you're working in a nine to five job, whether you're a musician, you're not always going to be at the top of your game. And so I've kind of learned to accept that. But at the same time, you know, that for someone that, for someone like me who suffers from this so, so horribly, like, it's just like, is that going to be the piece where everybody realizes I have no idea what I'm doing? <laughs> So, you know, it's, like it's it's interesting because yeah, it's like a lot of people have asked me, you know, oh man, I I want a job like that. How do you get into that? And I'm like, you bullshit your way through it. Like that's, right. you know, I mean, how do any of us figure out what we're doing? We do it by trial and error. We do it by experience, and eventually that experience. I, I think the problem is 
when all of us, pretty much everyone I know who starts in this field, we all start with this like consumer level knowledge. We don't know mm -hmm. anything more than anybody else, but right. we're passionate about it. Well, that feeling of I don't know more than anybody else never goes away, even though our experience does. And you have right. to you have to remind yourself, I've used 65 different phones in the past three years. You know what I mean? Like that's arbitrary number, but still, like, right. you, have to, yeah. you have to remind yourself, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Other people haven't done that. So, of course, they look to you for for your your expert opinion. And it's hard to call yourself an expert. I, I, I realize that it's, you know, I kind of liken it to the fact that like I'm a cyclist and yeah. it's hard to call myself an athlete. I'm not a pro athlete. I'm not an athlete, right? but you know what? I'm an athlete. It's, it's you're, the you're, same. you're more of an athlete than most of the people that are going to ask you if you're an athlete. It's so the, it's the same concept. You know, it's the same yeah. concept. Imposter syndrome is, it's hard, it's challenging, it's demeaning. It is absolutely terrifying. It's a hard thing to deal with. Mm -hmm. And especially like in, in cases like you and me, where like our literal livelihood rests on being able to accomplish these tasks. Like, you know, I know, so, okay, I know for a fact, I know for a fact, I am a better podcast producer than most of the people that work in the How Stuff Works network. Because you know what? I listen to their podcasts and I find their mistakes every single damn episode. But at the same time, <laughs> I, I know for a fact that I'm like one terrible episode away from my podcast of just like folding up the tents and going home. That's not true. But I mean, that's like how I feel very often is like, I know like my, I'm, I'm pitting my entire reputation on this latest episode of the podcast that I'm putting out. And that's, but, um, um, I, I kind of got sidetracked there. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, vulnerability but I mean, is a beautiful thing. It's, it's yeah. insightful, you know? And, I, and so, so like one thing that I wanted to ask is like, how do you cope with it? Like if you ever, when you, when you run into that imposter syndrome wall, like what gets you to pick up the pieces and move forward? How do you, how do you do that? So, you know, it, it's interesting because it, for me, a lot of it really comes back to my early days as a writer. When I first started writing, I started writing because of a guy named Whitson Gordon. And okay. Whitson was a writer. He was, the, he was a writer at Lifehacker. He was the editor-in-chief of Lifehacker after a time. And he was the inspiration that really pushed me to, to try, to try the writing thing. Later in time, I got to, I had the privilege of being able to work for Whitson. He was my boss when I first started at How To Geek. He was How To Geek's editor-in-chief. Cool. He was the number one reason why I went to work for How To Geek. And when I applied for the position and he responded to me and said, man, I was glad to see your name hit my inbox. That was huge oh. for me. Yeah. Oh my God. I, this dude. I would this, still be glowing from that today. <laughs> that, was, that was the thing. And over time I became, I mean, obviously Whitson was my boss, but we became friends. Sure. And, the praise that he gave me when I was a writer for him, I come back to that. Even now as an editor, I come back mm. to that. When I feel this, oh my God, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing any of this. I remember the guy who inspired me to write loved my work. 
and that that really brings it back home to me. It's oh, it's, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, and I and I realize that not everybody has that, so that's also a message for all the editors out there, all the literally every human being out there. If you know someone who suffers from imposter syndrome, tell them, tell them what a great job they're doing. Like seriously. Mm. Seriously, tell them because that means the world to everyone who has imposter syndrome. You it know, does, doesn't it? Yeah, it, you know, it really does. You know what? I remember um, one of the things that you edited for me. Um, was, I, I don't remember what it was. It was a how to about something, and it was some kind of reset procedure. Or and and I still remember this comment. Two years ago, I worked for you for a month and a half, and I still remember this comment. Um, was uh, there was there was something with Microsoft, and you had to click yes, and then it would come up with the confirmation box. It said, "Are you sure?" And you had to click yes again. And I remember my instructions were something to the effect of click yes, and then click yes again to relieve Microsoft's um, um, insecurity, <laughs> and like just moved. <laughs> on to the next step and and you highlighted that you're and, and i and if i remember correctly it was like yes with like three capital 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 uh, um, exclamation points and i'm just like that made that made me feel good <laughs> like, that is absolutely um, that that sounds absolutely on point for me too because i love shit like that i love <laughs> i do i absolutely love it and it's you know it's it's that's one of the things that i've learned as an editor is and I go back to, again, I go back to the way Whitson used to edit me. And it was just like, dude, it made me feel on top of the world when he would come back and be like, dude, this is a great piece. I love it. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. literally, oh. it, it took him two Attaboys seconds to Attaboys are the only reason that. I keep doing this. <laughs> I mean, like, that's it. That's exactly yeah. it. You know, and it's, it's like, I go back and then, you know, to, to even further that, it's like my boss now, Lowell, he's, the, he's basically the, the CEO of our entire network. When he comes mm-hmm. to me and he says, hey, man, you're doing a great job. That really brings me back home. That really grounds me and says, you know what? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, 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 I don't feel like I know what I'm doing, but apparently but, I do. But at least he, he thinks so. At least he thinks, <laughs> you know, and it, it's like that's, those are the moments. Those are the moments that bring it back home to me. Nice. You know, those, that's, those are the moments that make it. Uh, cause I do, I mean, I don't want to say every day, but like probably once a week I have this moment of, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm just winging it. But then I, mm-hmm. I remind myself, you got to remind yourself of all the people who believe in what you're doing. And then it kind of says, you know what? You come back and you're like, maybe, maybe I do know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know? Well, and and you know when you say when you say winging it, I actually kind of consider that to be kind of like educated guessing. Like yeah. you know you're 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 moving forward with a strategy that your experience t- teach has taught you will be the best. You w- will have the best chance at resolving in a in a positive way. That's, and so wow, like. So you nailed it right there. Yeah. Right there. And as, as long as you keep doing that, I mean, I really think that that's got to be the, that's really got to be, you know, your philosophy is, you know, as long as your experience tells you this is the right thing to do, you know, and even if you've never been in that exact situation before, you've probably at least either A, heard about situations like that, or B, have had similar situations, or C, you can analyze the situation based on your 
on your previous experience and you can guess and sometimes you're going to be right sometimes you're going to be wrong and and that's okay that's the important part you're going to be wrong yeah. you're going to oh, be yeah. wrong. you know i i tell everybody everybody everything i've ever learned about anything in life has been from messing it up I don't know that I learned anything from getting shit right, honestly, because it's like, oh, I got it right. What did I learn from that? No, because I don't analyze that the way I do when I get it wrong. Right. I get it wrong and I go, why did I get this wrong? Why did this happen? What can I do better next time? So, dude, yeah, don't be afraid to fuck up. Do it. And like, seriously, you'll learn. And, you know, I used to work for a startup and one of the mantras in the startup life is if you're going to fail, fail fast. Um, you know, and, you know, and, and, um, I was actually just reading, I th we talked about that article about the Segway earlier, you know, when we were off air, um, that'll be part of a new segment. So go back a couple of weeks, listeners, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, but they said, um, you know, one of the things, uh, Dean Carmen was the guy, I think his name was who invented the Segway. And they said one of his philosophies as an engineer was if you're going to make a mistake, make a spectacular mistake, because that at least means you're going for it. Oh, I love you know? that. I love that. You know, I, I love yeah. that philosophy. You can ask, you could probably ask any of my writers what sentence, what phrase I say the most when we're talking about new ideas and new articles. Fuck it. Let's try it. I yeah. say it all the time. And, and I, mm. I learned more from fuck it. Let's try it than I ever have from playing it safe. Like, yeah. try it. Try 100%. it. 100%. Believe in if yourself. Like, and remember the people who believed in you because that, that, like for all, anyone who suffers from imposter syndrome, the people who believed in you are your backbone. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, as long as you learn from your mistakes, they're not actually mistakes. They're experiments. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so true though. It's so true. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, uh, Cameron, thank you very much for uh, coming on and chatting with, uh, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit is going to be the working title of this segment. Um, but, you know, thanks for pulling back the curtain for me and talking about imposter syndrome. That's fantastic. I love it. Thank you. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank Cameron Summerson for coming on and showing us his vulnerable side when discussing imposter syndrome. And I would like to thank AXA for sending over the 4K1 projector for review. And you know I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.